Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. We are back, and we're doing sections 27 and 28 today. Good stuff. We've got two different kinds of uh, revelations here that are dealing with some challenges the church was having right off the bat. Section 27 is uh, sort of a formative type of revelation that uh, has a lot of influence on how we view things today and do things in the church. Deals primarily with the sacrament, but then goes into sort of an anthology, if if you will, about these different prophets and and their different responsibilities. And, you know, right off the bat, it's not really clear how those things uh, fit together. And so as I was kind of going through this and looking over what was really being said, it uh, started coming together in a different way or in a in a more cohesive way than I had had seen before. So there's a lot of really good stuff in uh, section 27 that helps us understand what the restoration is about and what it is that Joseph Smith was was really putting together here to say another way what the Lord is is putting together through Joseph Smith which kind of brings us to section 28 here we we get some more direction and this kind of establishes along with some other sections but this one is pretty key to the Latter-day Saint understanding of how revelation works with regard to the church. And it kind of establishes this authoritative or almost, maybe not quite hierarchical yet, but but it's going in that direction of hierarchy of revelation and authority at, at how this happens. And it all kind of revolves around uh, this experience that this uh, member of the church had, Hiram Page, where he also had a seer stone and he was getting some revelation through his seer stone and you know members of the church this was this was actually a maybe normal's not the right word but uh, maybe a common thing for them and so it wasn't like oh somebody's getting revelation through a stone that's weird you know uh, oh brother so and so's at it again in Sunday school going off about <laughs> this or that <laughs> it, they actually it was like you know it seemed kind of normal or, or or common for them and so um these revelations were accepted by some in the church you know and i don't i don't know if the word unfortunate is is rather appropriate to this i think unfortunate like from a historical perspective it's unfortunate that we don't have access to any of what those revelations were maybe somebody knows maybe there's like secondhand accounts of, of what it was cuz i think it would just be interesting to know you know what what is more of the context here what was hiram page actually saying that was according to this section deceiving the people or he was being deceived by at any rate the the principle that we get out of this that that really is formative for the the church and is still you know fundamental today is that the prophet or the first elder or the one who's at the head of the church is the only one who receives revelation on behalf of the church and how it's supposed to operate and move forward and that others 
are certainly entitled to and should receive revelation, but that revelation isn't authoritative with regard to the organization of the church itself. You know, at first, you know, Joseph Smith is named, and then in later in verse 7, it talks about how, you know, if another is appointed and is said. So what we could call principles of revelation here, um, these are generally understood and within church doctrine as as uh, outlining the the order of things. If you talk to any run-of-the-mill Latter-day Saint, I guess you could say, this uh, very well reflects their understanding of how revelation is supposed to work with regard to the church and personal revelation and how that dynamic sort of happens. Yeah. Yeah. It, the the way this has evolved is very fascinating. And, you know, Section 27 does go into a lot about priesthood, and I think we're going to have a lot to talk about priesthood. You know, when we were talking before uh, before Ben, I loved that you had brought up, in when I, as I was reading in verses one through four, I didn't pick this up, but then you came in and, and started talking about something that impressed upon you. So I want to hear you talk about it first, and then I'll, I'll kind of fill in a couple of thoughts I had, because I, I have more filler thoughts than I have actual, like real <laughs> thoughts. But here in talking about the sacrament in the beginning of uh, section 27, we were talking specifically about what kind of material, uh, is material the right word? Whether bread or water or wine should be used, like what kind of wine should you use? And you can see there's this question that they were asking. But man, you had a you had an, a thought that I thought was just absolutely brilliant here. And the more that I started thinking about it, the more I think there's a lot more to it. So tell us what you were talking to me about. So, the, well, the context of this section is that, hey, you know, I, there's going to be more history to hear, but, you know, according to this, the section heading, they, he was going to get wine to bring to the sacrament. There's a lot of, uh, sort of between the lines you could read here. You, you could definitely sort of interpret this in different ways. You could say, oh, hey, you know, Joseph Smith didn't want to just keep spending money on wine. So he came up with this revelation about how he didn't have to spend money on wine anymore. But but obviously there's more to it. You know, it seems like there could be, uh, you know, a lot more, a lot simpler way of going about it than, you know, inventing this whole revelation. But um, anyway, he goes to, to, he goes to get wine. And uh, the backstory is that there was a concern about, because of the persecutions that were happening among the church uh, or to the church and members of the church, they were trying to stop them from being baptized. A lot of times they'd like, you know, break down the dams of the the creeks that they would try to baptize. It, there was all this stuff going on and, and, and it was getting worse all the time. So there was a concern that they might try to poison the wine that they would purchase to use for the sacrament. And so Joseph Smith goes by a wine. He stopped by, it says a heavenly messenger Okay, so that's a long term for just say, you could just say an angel, right? But he's stopped by an angel and the angel tells him this, you know, this section here, which he basically delivers to him the words of Christ. Now, um, that in and of itself was something kind of interesting. It's like, okay, why, why in this instance is it an angel that comes? And I'm not, I'm not really sure why, you know, maybe somebody would have some commentary on that. Like, why does an angel come in this case to deliver the words of Christ? Why wouldn't, you know, the spirit just tell Joseph Smith or, you know, Christ would just come? Uh, I don't know why an angel is appropriate to this. But in any case, he comes, he says in verse two, it mattereth not what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink when ye partake of the sacrament. So that I think is a really important important phrase to remember, mattereth not. 
And the reason I think it's important to remember as you continue into the section is because he goes on to talk a lot about wine. (laughs) It's like, it's like, if it doesn't matter, why are you talking about wine so much? Well, because wine is a symbol and he says it's a symbol and then he goes on to talk about it. But he says it doesn't matter. The wine isn't the important part. What it is, is that what it symbolizes. And so once you realize that, that the wine is a symbol or the new wine is a symbol, then as you proceed through it, then a lot of these other things that keep referring back to wine make a little more sense. What does the wine symbolize? Well, in verse two, he goes on to explain it. He says, it, it mattereth not what you shall eat or what you shall drink when you partake of the sacrament. If it so be that you do it with an eye single to my glory, remembering unto the Father my body, which was laid down for you, and my blood, which was shed for the remission of your sins. Wherefore, a commandment I give unto you that ye shall not purchase wine, neither strong drink of your enemies. Wherefore, ye shall partake of none, except it is made new among you. Yea, in this my Father's kingdom, which shall be built up on the earth. Okay, so... The symbol here of the wine, he says, is this way of seeing God, right? In fact, wine can is, is used multiple times in, in the scriptures to represent multiple things. But here we have it representing the blood of Christ, the atonement of Christ. We also have, when Christ talks about wine, he talks about new wine. And this is a, a symbol of like a restoration, right? And so... When Christ says, you know, new wine, oh, you don't put new wine into old bottles. You have new bottles and you put new wine into the new bottles. And so here we have this new wine being made. And what is this? It's a restoration. It's also this new way of seeing God. It's a representation of this this covenant. And what we talked about in an earlier section, I believe it was 22, new and everlasting covenant, right? So this is this new way of coming to understand who God is. And in verse three, uh, we're going to go back to, you know, what verse two talks about, but again, but in verse three, I thought this was, you know, again, I kind of stopped and puzzled. I'm like, why is he talking about you don't purchase wine of your enemies? If, if he says it doesn't matter what you use, then why go into it? Well, again, I think there's symbolism here going on with this because if wine is this way or one of the things it can represent is our relationship with God and how we view him and how we're interacting with him as symbolized by the sacrament itself, then we don't want to purchase wine of our enemies. In other words, we don't want to get our idea of how we see God and interact with him from the world or from those who view God in a different way or view God in an opposing way not the way that he is revealed, he has been revealing himself and has revealed himself through Jesus Christ. So we don't get our idea of God in that way. You don't purchase wine from your enemies, so to speak. Then this section goes into a whole discussion of all these different prophets, and he's going to drink wine with all these different prophets. Well, again, you know, I don't think he's talking about like literal wine. Maybe he is. <laughs> it's it's possible. But the symbolism here is that this act of drinking wine with them is this coming into a relationship with God and understanding who he is. And this is symbolized and becomes figurative, but also literal 
in our experience with the sacrament as we partake of that. And again, it doesn't matter what it is, it's what it symbolizes. And so when he goes on and talks about wine in all these cases, why does he keep talking about wine with drinking wine with each of these different prophets and their responsibilities? Well, because he has brought those prophets, he's giving all these examples of all these prophets that he has brought into this experience with him. And then he kind of gives a little blip about what their experience was and what their responsibility was in his work. And we, we've been talking about how this is God's work and we are simply participating in it. He's invited us to participate in the work with him. And so again, these are examples of those prophets that he has brought in to participate in the work with him. It's sort of an implicit invitation to us as well, right? That that we find what our calling is, so to speak. These are what all these prophets have done. And we find what it is that the Lord, what the work the Lord has for us, and that we come into that, into that relationship with him. And that we we do that in this new way, right? This new wine way, not the old wine way, but that we actually experience it. We take it into our being. So this goes back to verse two. I'm really glad that um, in the contemplation podcast, Morgan and, and Riley and, and Christopher brought up this concept of remembrance in relation to the sacrament. Because um, remembering, we, we often use this word to signify something that has to do with our memory in our mind. But it really like linguistically, etymologically, it's much more profound than that. There's a lot more going on here because a member is a part of something. And when you remember, you are bringing that part that used to be a part of something and putting it back in its proper place. And so when we take the sacrament and that body of Christ is broken, and then we remember him and then literally take him and put him in our bodies, or, you know, I say we literally take the bread, but symbolically of taking him and putting him in our bodies. I'm not going to get transubstantiation on you or anything, but um, <laughs> but there is some literalness going on there. And it's that we are bringing, we are going to bring, we are having this experience where we are bringing Christ into who we are. And by so doing, we are uniting ourselves with the body of Christ. We are, we say we're members of the church, right? And so when we're remembering, we are bringing ourselves back into the body of Christ. I see that, it, you know, he goes into all these examples basically and says, you know, this is, this is how this prophet went through this process and, and held these keys and responsibilities. And, and we could go into each one of those because there's more to pull out from that. But overall idea of this section really puzzled me for a little while. I, I thought it was just a little odd that there would be a, such a long discussion about wine when he just spent verse two telling you it didn't matter. I think once I realized that, no, he he's continuing with the symbolism that he really does say it doesn't matter, but you have to hold on to that symbolism in order to get what he's saying in the broader context. Yeah, I love all of that. And that's why I wanted you to explain all that. 
<laughs> I kind of felt like I fumbled through it a bit, but <laughs> no, it sounded great. And when when you were explaining that before, I couldn't help but think, and I think even you brought it up too, of Jesus when he was talking in the New Testament about new wine, because he gives this parable, and it's it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I, I'm I'm going to read the the Matthew version, and then I'm going to turn to the Luke. But he says, "No man putteth a piece of new cloth onto an old garment." For that which is put in to fill up taketh from the old garment, and the rent is made worse. Neither do men put new wine into old bottles, else the bottles break, and the wine runneth out, and the bottles perisheth. But they put new wine in new bottles, and both are preserved. Yeah, and so it goes right into what you were talking about. When this wine that we're looking at is this new relationship with God. It's this new way of being able to take in, to experience, to, to experience God. And, you know, there's a, a, a website that you had shared with me, Ben, that goes through several different scriptural interpretations of what new wine means. Everything from having an intimacy with God to the trials giving way to joy and that new wine refers to the time of the harvest. It's the time where you celebrate and you bring in everything that you've been partaking of. You know, as Christ tells everyone to go out into and the field is white already to harvest and you bring this in, everything is about this idea of the harvest. And so new wine, you have to have a fresh crop to have new wine. So it's that whole bringing in story, the whole gathering and and having that gathering come in. And so this is a time of celebration. It's a time where we need to have new vessels to be able to fill in these new words and these new ways of being. And it's a giving way of the old. Now in the Luke version, it adds after this, this metaphor, it says that no man also having drunk old wine straightway desireth new, for he saith the old is better. Hmm. You know, and I sat with this, I've sat with this verse quite some time wondering, you know, if Jesus is giving so much emphasis to the the glory of the new wine, why this verse here talking about how the old is better? And, you know, it occurred to me that so many times in my life, I have had moments when when I know that God wants to reveal something new to me, and and I, I'm on the precipice of something new, but I, but I also know whether it's implicitly or if it's just <laughs> or however I know it that once I grasp a hold of what this thing is that God's about ready to want to give to me, I'm going to have to be responsible for it, and I'm going to have to let go of a lot of things that I've been holding on to that are valuable to me, and. In a lot of ways, this is like Lot's wife turning back in Sodom and Gomorrah. This is, to borrow a, a descriptive phrase out of the Book of Mormon from Brigham Young, it's like a dog returning to its vomit. It's it's that we always find that there is something better in the way that we have been. Because we don't, as human beings, we are far more... This was a sales principle like 101. When I was training salesmen, this was like sales training 101. We would always tell salesmen that people are not rational beings. We are not rational beings. We're emotional beings that justify our emotion logically, right? (laughs) So whenever I'm out, whenever I'd be door to door is selling whatever I was selling, I would always recognize that people are emotional beings that crave stories. And so the best salesmen are storytellers and storytellers are kind of what lead the people to making their own decisions about the product they want to sell. And you sell emotion. And then you follow it up with logic. It's only half price today, right? 
<laughs> yeah, you've charged them double, but you know, you've given them half price. <laughs> and and it's suddenly it's a deal. And so we are not emotion or we are not logical beings. We're emotional beings. We lead with this emotion. And so there's so many times in my life when I have been on that precipice of change and I've not wanted to change. And yet when I am called into something new, I want to go back to the way it was before because it was comfortable. I justified the way I believed, usually in some kind of emotion. We don't live with our beliefs in a vacuum. All of our beliefs are justifiable. We can defend every single one of our beliefs for why we believe it. And we have strong emotions that are attached to those beliefs, and we justify those emotions with logic. And so we have to ask ourselves and do really deep dives on our own consciousness and in our own being in asking ourselves and questioning the basic assumptions of the things we think we believe in to ask, is this really true? Or what are the presuppositions and what are the, what, what am I positing to believe these truths? And in my life, I found that there are many beliefs that I keep on finding over and over and over again are good fruit. They are from good healthy sources, and they keep producing good fruit. And yet there are still some cherished beliefs, there are still some cherished ways of being that I go back to, that I find comfort in even, that I'm like, yeah, I just, I love this thing, but it never really produces good fruit. And so in a lot of ways, I think, you know, this verse here, no man having drunk the old wine straightway, straightway desireth new, for he saith the old is better. Mm-hmm. We always have comfort in the old. We have comfort in the familiar. But I like the word there straight straightway in Luke 5.39. No man having drunk old wine straightway desireth new. Because in that moment of change, and this goes into the Beatitudes, because whenever that first Beatitude of emptying, of being poor in spirit, and of emptying all of that ego, of emptying all of that uh, those layers of earthly identity, the next Beatitude is mourning. Because we always mourn that thing in which we have given up. Because it was valuable to us, we created meaning around these things. And so giving them up sometimes is very painful. And so that's really why when you brought this up, I was, I was like, man, this is good stuff here. Because this wine analogy, and, and it really clicked for me when you brought in in, in verse 2. He's like, hey, it doesn't matter what you eat or what you drink. But here, let me give you another couple of verses about wine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you're like, wait, what? <laughs> Why? <laughs> because everything that follows there is talking about this new wine. It's a, this new experience that God is bringing us into. I love that. You know, in talking about uh, in priesthood here, you know, Ben, a couple, you know, last couple of weeks, you know, we've talked on the side about priesthood. And, and there's a couple of ideas about priesthood that I've been mulling over for a while. And I hadn't been knowing where to kind of start to talk about it. And when we were talking, I was like, well, we had a conversation where uh, third Nephi, we talked about possibly not being Jesus in uh, third Nephi nine and 10. So I guess we can bring up a different idea or a new idea about priesthood and, you know, see, kind of just throw it out there. But uh, just one of the things I've been thinking about priesthood on came after I read a book by, it was a French sociologist. He was, he was one of two guys that had really formalized the school of sociology as, as an actual science. And one guy, his name was Emile Durkheim, and another one was Max Weber. And Emile Durkheim was born in the mid-1800s in France, and he was born of, in a Jewish family. 
And at the time, the Jews in France had just kind of overcome their own civil rights movement where they had gotten a lot of their rights, you know, only about 10 years before he was he was born, but they'd been fighting for their own rights in France for a very long time. And by the time Emile, he, he, he grew up, he was at the university, he had given up on the religious aspect of Judaism, and he'd become very much more agnostic, if, if not atheist. But when he came into sociology, one of the things that he, in sociology that he really wanted to explore was this concept of religion. And so being a Jew and a persecuted country and growing up in that uh, in that environment he saw that religion was ubiquitous it, religion was everywhere every culture every people everywhere around the world has religion and so he started to wonder from a sociological point of view how he could start to answer these questions now whether or not he was right or wrong is really beside the point it, just in reading him and reading some of these ideas a few ideas came to mind but the way that he defined religion, which I, I don't personally define it this way, but the way he defined religion was that when society comes together and when people come together and they start to coalesce and they find unity and they find common narratives and common, common attributes that keep them together, that they will begin to have certain centers in their society that they start to coalesce around. And so to, to try to illustrate his point, he picked a, a tribe down in Australia, the Arunta tribe. And this is the tribe down there that has the totem poles. And on these totem poles, he, he, he picks this tribe because he thinks this is the oldest, one of the oldest and the most simple tribes with a very simple basic religion that he could use sociological principles on to be able to pull out some ideas. And so while he's down there and he's analyzing this Arunta tribe and analyzing, he starts to recognize that they have a lot of special gatherings, group gatherings, around the totem poles. And that these totem poles, they had kind of, the, the community had in, imbued these totem poles with meaning. They'd put several marks on them that told genealogies and histories and, 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 and different stories so that when the community gathers around them, there is a shared experience around this entity. And so he starts talking about how all religions have this kind of what he calls a totem pole. He shortened it, and so he, he called it a totem in reference to the totem pole. So he says that all religions, all societies create totems, which are visible manifestations or, or physical objects that we gather around and we imbue with power, we, we imbue with meaning that we find collective unity to. We can say using the same idea of a totem we can say that this is the same thing that we feel when, for instance, those who live in America and, and you see the stars and stripes, or if uh, you know you're, you're the country, the flag of your country, and you hear the national anthem. If you feel a, a swelling and a sense of pride in a group of people about that whole thing and about that moment, and, and uh, you know it's the Star Spangled Banner in the United States and uh, the stars and stripes, and if you feel a sense of community and of togetherness around this this object, this flag, then that means the flag is a totem. It, it, it's a shared object that people gather around. As Latter-day Saints, if we walk into a member's home and we see a Christus statue sitting there, and we, and we don't even know they're, they're a Latter-day Saint, and we walk in and we see that on a piano, there's a little Christus there. It's like this this immediate recognition about who and what people are. And so we, we coalesce around these kinds of objects. Well, at the same time, there is this idea of religious modes. And so this really kind of brings in two ideas, the idea of modes and the idea of totems. 
because this this idea of modes comes around. And Ben, you and I have talked about prayer quite a bit, and I've told my story about prayer uh, quite a few times now. And I just wanted to bring it up one more time because I think it's a great example of what this idea of mode means. Because through my life, when I've prayed, and as I've been praying, you know, in the very standard formulaic way that we're taught to pray, you know, with with our arms folded and our head bowed, usually while we're kneeling down, we have a very specific way of praying. We, you know, we, we we address the Father and we thank Him, and then we 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 ask for what we need, and we close in the name of Jesus Christ, and and we say Amen, and that's kind of the formulaic way that we pray. And in my life, I, I've I've had moments because I've never been really really good at that that particular way of praying. I've tried so hard, but it just it's never really landed for me. And I, to this day, I still try. I still, I still get in those moments of trying to, of trying to make this a habit. And it's just, it's never clicked for me. And I've always felt very bad about it. And, and, and I do, I, I, I still keep at it because I'm, I'm, I'm trying, but, but something came along at one point when I had started to studying prayer and different forms of prayer from different Christian faiths. And I started to realize that there were two or three other different types of prayer that I had been doing organically through my entire life. One of them is called Lectio Divina. But there are different ways of praying that I had been doing automatically without even knowing what I was doing. And as soon as I started to recognize and someone had put words to these experience of things as I was already doing to connect to God, I started to consciously recognize that I've been doing that all along. And then there was this second follow-up question of saying, but is that a legitimate way to pray? Is that something that I can really do? Is that really prayer? And then I had to take that to I had to take that to my heavenly Father. And as I started to pray and, and get the answer, the answer came really fast, and it was kind of this <laughs> this kind of this like chuckle feeling that I had of just saying, "Of course it is. Of course it's a legitimate way to come to me. You've been doing it your whole life." And I've responded, and we've been in communication with each other. And in that moment, I lost all of my guilt for the failures that I had in not being able to really access this formulaic way of praying. Because there are other ways that I've been able to talk to God, and He's talked to me back. And so I started to recognize that prayer is a mode, and there are different types of modes of prayer. Sometimes, and I know people who folding their arms and bowing their heads and going through that process is incredibly powerful for them. And that really lands for them. It hasn't for me. But I also know that things like Lectio Divina and silent praying works really well. I connect really quick with my Heavenly Father this way. That's just a different mode of praying. So a mode is basically any action or any intention, anything that you can focus an intentionality to, that you access God. So going out into nature, I know for many people going out into nature is they're coming into an experience with God. That's a mode by which they experience God. For many people, I know that going to church is their mode. That mode of worship and that mode of experience God through church work and through church worship service really focuses the intentionality of their inner faith and discipleship through that mode. And it just means a lot to them and God speaks to them heavily that way. I happen to know right now that there are many people who going back to church right now in a lot of different uh, venues isn't landing for them very well. And, and there is some anxiety there. 
because the mode of the using the church as a mode of worshiping God and connecting with God, just there's been a detachment and there's been a reattachment to other modes. And so prayer can be a mode. Different types of prayers can be a mode, right? And so anything that we do, scriptures, reading scriptures can be a mode. So anything that we use as a tool to connect to the divine is a mode. And totems can also be modes in the sense of if we use that object, if we have an object of communal identity that we use to focus our our intentionality through to experiencing God. So if, if you think kind of in Latter-day Saint terms, we have stories of Joseph Smith as a young man digging a well and coming through and finding a rock. And from that rock, he pulls this rock out and through this rock, he puts it into a hat and supposedly translates ancient records that this, this is the way that the story goes. And we believe this. And we also believe that God provided this little ball to ancient people 600 years before Christ that we call the Liahona, where it says that the, the amount of effort and the amount of focus, the amount of intentionality that they placed into the ball itself, they focused, it was, it was a method given that God gave them a totem. God gave them a physical object that the, that the whole tribe of Lehi could focus their intentionality through and onto. And when Joseph focused his intentionality onto the rock, it produced something. And so we are able to focus our intentionality onto certain things and to give them and imbue them with power. I've talked about the story of Joseph Smith imbuing with power the handkerchief that he gave to my great-great-great-grandfather who came across the Mississippi to his family and healed his family who was suffering from malaria there when they were emptying the swamps in Nauvoo. So there's we have a rich history in our people of imbuing these objects with power. We've already talked about the blood, the blood canes from Joseph and Hiram, about how they were used to focus the intentionality of people like Heber C. Kimball and Willard Richards to, to receiving revelation. They were able to focus these things in on these, focus their inner intentionality through these modes and through these totems into having and accessing God. And so the reason why I bring all this up is I, I had a thought that that perhaps the priesthood in one particular way, at least in part, might be considered a type of mode or totem. That it is it is an authority, it is something that God has given to us wherewith that we have to be able to channel the inner intentionality through our faith into this thing, to be able to administer something, an experience. Because when, when, for instance, in verse 5, in, in section 27, verse 5, and this goes back to something that you and I have talked about before, Ben, when we talked about uh, Moroni appearing to Joseph that one night, and he, and he rehearsed those scriptures four times, uh, three times, and then the, next, the fourth and the next point, is that Moroni here is, the very first scripture that he brings up is Malachi. And in bringing up Malachi, he invokes the priesthood. That, because in Malachi 3, it doesn't talk about priesthood, but Joseph very specifically said that Moroni did mention priesthood, to be able to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children, lest that he come and smite the whole earth with a curse. And we talked a lot about what that means. In fact, I have an article that I'm still I'm still halfway through writing that I, I'll try to get it to, I'll try to get it published by the time on at least on Latter-day Peace Studies 
by the time we release this podcast because it goes through kind of the lived experience of what the angel Moroni was trying to accomplish here. But when we talk about turning the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children, we're talking about directing our intentionality. We're talking about this way of being able to bring our intentionality into focus to heal the family of God, to be able to bring together and to reconcile the family of God. And so there was a quote that we had in uh, in that episode about Moroni, and it's it's from Stephanie Wagner when she says that pain travels through families until someone is ready to feel it. I'll say it again. Pain travels through families until someone is ready to feel it. Because, you know, we have this idea of generational trauma. We have this idea that trauma, in the Book of Mormon, it talks about the false ideas and the false false traditions of the fathers, that these things will be passed from generation to generation. Pain will be passed from generation to generation until there is a generation that will stop to feel it and experience it and deal with it. And so in this, I see that this priesthood, that this mode, this totem, that everything that God has given to Joseph and Oliver in the last days is given to them for the purpose of reconciling and healing and letting all of the trauma from the past generations stop. Because there needs to be a repentance process to learn to see God differently. So when Moroni shows up and he brings this idea of the priesthood to reconcile the family of man together, and then to recognize that this priesthood. So when I go through and I, and I see all these names here in, in section 27 from Moroni mm-hmm. and Elias and John the Baptist and Elijah and Jacob, Joseph and Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, Michael, you know, you know, Adam, we're talking about Adam here. And then Peter, James, and John. We're talking about people that we then begin to use as placeholders as like types of totems and modes where each one of these people have a different message. Each one of these people have a different purpose. Each one of these people have a different cause that they are bringing. And in that message that they bring, they give us themselves as a way to look at them through this priesthood to accomplish the thing by which they symbolize. And so using Moroni, because that's what we've been talking the most about, um, and John the Baptist we talked about before, right, as being the the person to bring the message of the new Christ. Mm-hmm. Now we can focus our intentionality through John the Baptist to talk about this new Christ and repent. Part of, at least what stands out to me in section 27 now, is that through these men who are supposedly bringing this priesthood, now we have a new face to focus the intentionality and give us purpose to being able to accomplish the things in which they bring to us. Yeah, I mean, that's the way that I I see this here when he's going through these prophets is, is that it's a way of saying, hey, they each kind of had their own particular responsibility or mission, so to speak, but there is one unifying purpose of all of these. And it is it is actually stated pretty well with Elijah, but you can see the strain through through each of them. So Elijah talks about, or when in verse nine, when it talks about Elijah, you know, it goes to this famous verse. He says he's committed the keys of the power of turning the hearts of the fathers of the children, fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to the fathers, that the whole earth may not be smitten with a curse. But then you go on to this next verse here, and also with Joseph and Jacob and Isaac and Abraham, your fathers by whom the promises remain. 
In other words, you know, we we talk about Abraham and what is the promise made to Abraham. It says that that in his seed or through him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. That is, you know, that's just another way of formulating this, right? Another way of articulating the uh, the purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ to heal the family of God and bring us together. And then, so, so then he evokes Michael or Adam, the father of all, saying, you know, that there, we are all united. We are all of the same family, ultimately. I, I like how you talk about priesthood as this concept of healing, right? That, that's basically, you know, that's one way that the priesthood could be termed is the power to heal. And when we talk about sealing power, or we talk about, you know, family history and, and the work that we do in the temple, it's all about healing. And, and pretty much in any context, the, the purpose of, of priesthood is to heal, to bring things back together the way that they are intended to be. So, uh, you know, when, when we get into like the, the concept of, of the totem or, or whatever, the priesthood, uh, we talk about it in, in very like formal terms sometimes. And those formal ways of talking about the priesthood are a way to, that the Lord has given us in order for us to understand a particular context and purpose of our our responsibilities or or our mission so to speak but there's there's obviously something deeper and more profound and and more universal going on with this concept than we we often you know want to assign to it so i think i think there's a lot there that that we could go into when we I don't know that we really even talked about it much. It was kind of like a side mention of Peter, James, and John coming to Joseph Smith and, and Oliver Cowdery. But, you know, we we have the date, right, of the restoration of the Aaronic priesthood, so to speak. This is when John the Baptist comes to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. And, and we did talk about that a lot because the experience is, at least by Oliver Cowdery, is, is very well uh, described, <laughs> so to speak. Right. <laughs> but we, we didn't get as many words, especially from Oliver Cowdery, about what really happened with, with Peter, James, and John. And um, as I was reading this, you know, verse 12, where he mentions it, that he sent, he says, uh, Peter, James, and John, whom I have sent unto you, by whom I have ordained you and confirmed you to be apostles. You know, in in the original original in the Joseph Smith history version of this it doesn't say that they were ordained at that time to be apostles it says they conferred upon them the Melchizedek priesthood if i remember correctly and so i just think it's interesting you know that here it says that they were they were ordained or confirmed to be apostles it reminded me um i had to go look it up and find it in the book but it reminded me of a part in rough stone rolling by bushman and he's talking about this period in early church history where there was lots of um, the, the initial persecution that was going on in New York. Joseph and Oliver had been put on trial and they'd been acquitted and they'd gotten away and were traveling um, here and there. And the mobs were still, you know, we call them mobs. I don't, I don't know how many people were talking here. Anyway, there were people after him that were still going to want to tar and feather them, they found out. And so 
instead of taking like main roads and stuff, they were they were trying to get back home through sort of the back woods to try to avoid these people. And they they had an experience here, and this is sort of a secondhand account, but I'm going to read it out of the out of the book. It says uh, Joseph and Oliver went to the woods in a few rods, it being night, and they traveled until Oliver was exhausted. So they they left the road and they went a little ways off into the woods. And they had been been traveling all night because they'd been traveling all the day before. They traveled until Oliver was exhausted, and Joseph almost carried him through mud and water. They traveled all night, and just at the break of day, Oliver gave out entirely and exclaimed, Oh, Lord, how long, Brother Joseph, have we got to endure this thing? Brother Joseph said that at that very time, Peter, James, and John came to them and ordained them to the apostleship. You know, kind of going along with what you were talking about as as to like the the purpose of the priesthood, why did the Lord give us this? Why do we call it this? Why do we treat it the way we do? What is it anyway? <laughs> <laughs> this just this was something that I I I really I was listening to this audiobook when I first came across this and I just paused it and I just needed to like reimagine that in my mind a little more and, and think about this and you say sit with it for a little while um, because it was just the concept of of them Joseph and Oliver having gone through all of this and being chased by these people who would severely injure or or possibly kill them when I wasn't sure if they were going to go that far and being exhausted and um, just done you know and and crying out to the Lord and then. That's when, at that moment, that's when they received the Melchizedek priesthood. And it, it, it was just a, it's a different experience from, you know, how the John the Baptist came around, came about to, to give them the Aaronic priesthood. And I just, I, I like it because it shows us, I think, or, or to me, it seems to demonstrate sort of these different stages or phases or steps that we go through life where, you know, we may have had this great experience and, and blessing and, and, and received this knowledge or, or understanding or, or ability to move forward. And, but it doesn't mean that like trials or difficulties are over. And there's always sort of that, you know, dying and rebirth that is constantly happening for the Lord to to continually bring us into a greater, fuller, uh, more complete understanding of, of who we are and who he is. And so that's what I see sort of in this experience, right? That that once they were finally prepared for that, almost like in a beatitude way, right? They had emptied, they were mourning, and they desired this. You know, they they hungered and thirsted after righteousness, maybe literally hungered and thirsted, and then they were filled, right? The Lord brought to them this blessing. I just, I think it's so appropriate in an inappropriate way <laughs> that, that, that this is how they received that, uh, that ordination. Yeah, I love that story. I love how they were just at the very end, and then they were brought into this, this next experience. And how that's, how that happens to me, how that happens to me quite often you know, there's a, a gentleman that I've worked for for years. He's he's not a Latter Day Saint, but he's a very devout Christian, and he's been kind of a mentor to me and a really good friend. And 
he, you know, he's talked a long time about his relationship with God. And he was the first one to really frame this, this phrase that I've used for years since. And it's that God always shows up right when you need him, not a minute before and not a minute after. And I remember kind of being taken aback from that for the first time I heard it. I'm like, no, God's always there. And, and it took me a while. And again, I sat with it. <laughs> I sat with this idea and God's always there right when you need him. Not a minute before and not a minute after. And a lot of times that, that, just, that just scares me. Because even though I've had so many experiences with God, I still feel, I still feel like a child. I still feel like a child that needs constant reassurance, reassurance in everything. And I was like, Lord, do, do you really, do you really just, do you really need to take it down right there? Do you just need to take it down to the right then? <laughs> and every time I ask God this question, I, it's like, I just get this feeling of just him smiling. And, and I'm like, all right. And that's just my relationship with, with God, because you now there's been a lot of times where I've ranted and railed and yelled and screamed a little bit and created a few words. And at the end of all of that, it was just him being there with me and just whatever I needed. And for me, it, it, it didn't necessarily revolutionize or completely change the experience. <sighs> But it was the comfort of just knowing that there was someone there in my pain. And so, you know, as you told that story of Joseph and Oliver and how they're running and they collapse and that's just they're kind of at the end, that, that, that that's when these things happen. In verse 15 in section 27 through the end of the section, we get the story of the, the armor of God. And I've always loved the armor of God. I've loved what it stands for. I, I think it's interesting, you know, as, as a pacifist and a nonviolence person as I am, that I, I I love imagery and symbolism of soldiers <laughs> going to going to war, and and I love and I love this because I think in a lot of ways for me, the juxtaposing of the the armor and of the warfare with with the way that God does this is intentional to show. Mm-hmm. That all of this belief that we have of physical armaments and of physical prosperity and physical defense, and we use the symbolisms of these things and we redefine them with completely different meanings to show that the power of the true armor that we're supposed to have that really fights the enemy is these other things. Yeah, it's like right? a spiritual redirection, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and it redirects these thoughts. Wherefore, lift up your hearts and rejoice, and gird up your loins, and take upon you the, my whole armor, that ye may be able to withstand the evil day, having done all, that ye may be able to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, having the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, which I have sent mine angels to commit unto you. That speaks volumes right there to me. Hmm. Because we're talking about truth. Now, truth is a, is a complicated word. Truth is, truth is a complicated concept. Especially now, you know, if you take every Latter-day Saint and you put them shoulder to shoulder, and you just kept on asking them question after question about what is truth, you're going to have a lot of overlap. But you're going to eventually have as many different opinions as you have people. And so each one's going to have a different truth. 
And so what is the truth? You know, this has been a question that's been asked for thousands and thousands and thousands. It's going to be asked for thousands of years more. So when we gird about our, our loins and, and take the home of our God, and we, we gird about our loins with truth, one of the things that I have started to value is truth as an experience. And we talked about this a lot with the first vision, in that while men were clamoring to find truth, quote unquote truth, you can't see me, but I'm having my fingers up with air quotes, truth. As, as all of the different churches in Joseph's day were looking for truth, God led him to an experience in the first vision. And it was through his experience with God where he says, I knew it happened, and I knew God knew it happened, and I couldn't deny it. It wasn't in the rational belief structures that he found the truth. It was in the experience with God. That is where he found the truth that was undeniable for him. And so when we have, when we gird about our loins with truth, this isn't one of those things that I'm trying to sit down and trying to study, you know, the exegesis of actual the scriptures and really trying to figure out who, what, where, when said what and how and what that really means and be able to pull out the perfect meaning. I love that discussion. That discussion for me is, is a fulfilling thing. I, I find joy in it, but I've kind of given up on the thought that that is what leads me to truth. Just that exercise alone. Whereas I, I can be reading a, I can be reading the scriptures. I could be reading one of my favorite, my favorite literary works. My way that I approach scripture nowadays has been far more, as I said, lectio divina, which is more of a contem- contemplative way of being able to approach scripture, just to allow this the the intentionality and the love and the the effort that I have for God to come to the scriptures and then let God reveal whatever He's going to reveal. And so that's been for me personally. Now I know there's some people who like to do it. I mean, it does just doesn't land for. <laughs> what is this thing? And I'm like, well, if it works for you, great. If it doesn't, it doesn't. <laughs> um, I don't. I don't put any like normative value. Like this is the best way to do it. it that's not it at all. It just this is what works for me. I ha- I've had to look long and hard for different modes that I really work with and that God speaks to me to, and to try to expand out and go into different modes all the time. But when we come down here as well to the breastplate of righteousness and then the feet shot with the gospel of peace. You know, it's funny, Ben, uh, I, I told you just a little bit before we started recording, but I posted on social media here a little bit ago. It's been a couple months, actually, talking about my experience on social media over the last decade, and especially in, in starting uh, Latter-day Peace Studies. And in part of doing this, it's been interesting that when I was doing politics, Back in the day, and when when a group, our group called LDS Liberty was alive and thriving, what has now become Latter Day Peace Studies. When LDS Liberty was thriving, we were creating memes of polit, you know, politician, you know, for we were creating political memes using general authority talks and general authority quotes to justify constitutionalist, free market, agency kind of more American conservative agendas. Well, let me take that back. American libertarian agendas. You know, it was a, it was a libertarian kind of thing. And we've grown a lot since then. But what I started to recognize is that I found ways that the more vitriolic and the more anti-enemy that I made the meme, if I could find a quote that targeted an enemy, let, let, let's say a socialist, man, a socialist in like the 1960s LDS church was like the worst of the worst, a liberal democratic socialist. That's like the worst of the worst. And if I could find a meme that labeled a liberal democratic socialist as being not worthy of this church, 
man, those memes would go viral. <laughs> those th- those things, could, they would get shared everywhere, man. I'm still seeing those memes. We've deleted them from our database. I'm still seeing them now 10 years later. They've, they've been able to infiltrate the internet, and so they're still out there, these memes that we created. They still have the oldest Liberty logo on them and everything. After a little while, I got tired of it, and I'm like, you know what? I don't know if I'm really promoting a good message. And so I started to be able to, I started to create memes that had messages of Zion or of peace or of reconciliation or something that wasn't vitriolic and political. I would, I would post a political quote and it would go viral. (laughs) And then I'd post a peace quote and nobody would look at it. Nobody would share it. Nobody would like it. It it was a dud. Then I was like, wow, what was weird? So then I'd go back to the political meme and I'd share it again and it would go viral. And then I'd post the peace meme and like nobody would share it. (laughs) I was like, is like Facebook like throttling me or like what? You know, because that happens too. Facebook throttles our page quite often. And I was like, man, what is, what is going on? And so finally I started having to recognize after experimenting with this for months no one likes to share messages of peace. In fact, I've talked with other LDS producers uh, of different groups. Um, one of them in particular who, uh, who messaged me on, on that thread in particular, who said that his organization, his LDS-based organization, has also found that the least shared content, the emotion that drives you to share it or like it the least, is the message of peace. The message of peace is not one that we value enough to share. And so it was like one of those moments of saying, well, we have an organization called Latter-day Peace Studies. <laughs> like, how is how's this going to work? <laughs> so, and I was like, well, is it time to rebrand? I mean, we've only been a thing now for a little while. Is it time to rebrand already? And like, no, that, we can't. We just can't do that. So when I read this scripture to have the gospel of peace, since that time, and I even had to double check with with Lindsay Olin, our the the co-founder of Latter-day Peace Studies, and I was talking with her recently because it just dawned on me within the last couple of days that since I posted that message on Facebook, that I have had at least a half a dozen quotes come back, something where people will post something and say, well, Shiloh wouldn't like this because it's not feel good enough. Because it's, because it's not frou-frou enough. And it's usually said in a derogatory way. where Because on that thread as well, I said that I'm trying to promote messages now of peace, of reconciliation, of hope, of connection with God. And what that hasn't been interpreted as is Shiloh is not strong enough to be able to accept a God that's violent, and he just wants a frou-frou God that is happy all the time, and just just will take you in as, as however you are. And in fact, there was another comment that Lindsay had posted a comment about her experience in, having, in learning a new aspect of God, where someone had followed up that comment that she had given, saying that only those people who can accept a violent God and a loving God at the same time are basically well-adjusted. That to be well-adjusted means that you have to have a good, healthy belief in a violent, vengeful, punitive God and a and this loving God, this merciful God that we talk about as well. That that, that is the way that our LDS community, by and large, and, and these are these comments come from people who are leaders in the LDS community in various ways and various groups. 
not I'm not talking about of the of the LDS Church, but of of just LDS groups, kind of like Latter Day Peace Studies. And it's just been really interesting to me this idea of when you promote a message of peace, it is always seen as weak, as if you cannot endure a violent God, a violent competitive God, or a violent punitive God. We, you simply can't abide that kind of God, so you've got to invent a God of your liking. And I was like, and I was like, that's just not that's not the content we've been talking about. That's just not the way we've been talking about God. Because when I read scriptures like this, and I see this message of having our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, which I have sent mine angels to commit unto you. The entire purpose of all of the angels being sent thus far to Joseph, we're only in 1830 now, but the entire purpose of everything that has been here has been directed towards the gospel of peace. I just think that means something. Yeah, that that's for a long time been my favorite phrase out of the this um what do you call it i mean i guess this is a metaphor and this extended metaphor of the the armor of god and i i can't read it without thinking about abinadi who's um probably my favorite book of mormon prophet so uh, you know this is my favorite part from from abinadi and he is basically paraphrasing isaiah though here he says um, in Mosiah chapter 15. And these are they who have published peace, who have brought good tidings of good, who have published salvation, and said unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. And oh, how beautiful upon the mountains were their feet. And again, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who are still publishing peace. And again, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who shall hereafter publish peace. Yea, from this time henceforth and forever. And behold, I say unto you, this is not all. For oh, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that is the founder of peace. Yea, even the Lord, who has redeemed his people. Yea, him who has granted salvation unto his people. And man, I just love Abinadi and how he he took those scriptures of Isaiah and really just, just brought them out in this context here. So I, I love that as a sort of a cross-reference here to this armor of God, because I, I can't ever get over that. Um, is it a Freeberg painting of, of Abinadi standing there in chains? You know, <laughs> it's so good, right? Like it's 70 so years good. old and rip, more ripped than yeah, I was. <laughs> yeah, totally ripped. Like he, like he could just tear those chains to shreds anyway you know like <laughs> those chains aren't really holding him and and it's just powerful right that that he's standing there in chains but the chains aren't really holding him he's holding the chains right and and here preaching this and then and these to me of all the things abinadi says these are some of the most powerful if not the most powerful and there's so much obviously there but i love this part where he talks about you know publishing peace and and then Christ being the founder of that is, it's wonderful. I love that. I love that verse. Yeah, I've gone to back to that a lot myself. And just to, you know, and Abinadi's martyrdom, and to realize that he was there as a witness and as a martyr. And you know, a lot of the times we read that story as though he was prescriptively condemning the priests in Noah, when at best he was just descriptively telling people the the course of their actions. And it's just, man, what a great story. I can't wait till we talk about it because we, we started these, these, uh, podcasts 
just after Abinadi. And I know for years before we started doing Come Follow Me podcasts, you and I had been like, we got to start doing the LDS Liberty podcast again. And the very first one that we wanted to start back with was Abinadi. Well, we even started recording it, but like it didn't work out right. Like the, it didn't go right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's going to, it's going to take like another two and a half years to get to Abinadi. <laughs> like, oh, well, we'll, we'll grow a lot by then and have something, uh, hopefully something good to offer. But in, uh, moving on to finally to section uh, 28. And we have uh, just a different message here. We have, it says, the revelation given to Joseph Smith, the prophet, to Oliver Cowdery in Fayette. And what had happened, this is in September of 1830, just a month after um, section 27. What had happened is Hiram Page had joined the church and had tried to start to use his own totems. He had grabbed a stone of his own and had started to receive what he saw were impressions or revelations from this stone. And he had begun to write these down and these revelations down. And so they had begun to contradict things that Joseph had said. And so now we have this problem. We have two voices. And which one do we listen to? And I think this is interesting on, on one hand, because in a lot of ways, these these stones, who's to say which one was more objectively true or not? You know, it was was Hiram's stone a more pure stone? Was Joseph? And, you, and everybody can Google Joseph Stone. The church has uh, videos that, you know, you can just type Google Joseph Smith seer stone. And it's a brown rock with like a brown and a black rock and it has some swirls on it. And it's, it's, a, it's a good looking rock for as far as rocks go. But it, I mean, it doesn't have any inherent meaning to me. And if I were to hold it, I'd be like, awesome, it's a rock. And, but, but Joseph had poured his intentionality into it, his focus into it. Just like all of, you know, we talked about Oliver Cowdery with the uh, with the divining and the and the witching he they poured their intentionality into it and just like Oliver was able to pour his intentionality into the rods to make them work the lord still counseled Oliver to do it basically with an eye single to his glory to do it to, according to the lord's work as if the lord is saying yes you can pour your intentionality into any totem you can pour your intentionality into any object but here's the deal is number one, you have to have a pure intentionality. You have to be able to pour this into this to be able, whatever you pour into it is what you're going to get out of it. Yeah. Anybody can pour their intentionality into divining and doing these things. But for Oliver, the Lord came down and says, you're going to do it with a specific purpose. And that's one of the reasons why I love section 121 so much and why we go back to 121 so much is that when we start talking about the priesthood as this mode by which we focus our intentionality through, how do we know that what we're focusing is actually a true intentionality? And that's why the Lord gives virtues by which we can temper and know exactly what we're putting into this mode that we call a priesthood to be able to access God. Because unless our intentionality includes persuasion and long-suffering and gentleness and meekness and love and kindness and pure knowledge, unless we are doing all of these things without compulsory means, what we are putting into this mode is not God's priesthood, right? That's not what we're getting out of it. No power or influence can or even ought to be maintained by this mode except by these principles. And so it really goes to show that if we're going to really use this thing that God has given to us to be able to act and focus our intentionality through, we need to do these things. And so that really causes me to look at Hiram Page and say, was he truly looking with the heart of persuasion and long-suffering and gentleness and meekness and love and kindness and pure knowledge? Was he really bringing all of these virtues into that stone? 
that he was using and getting things from? Was his heart pure to do this? Anyone can do it. I mean, and we we think back to the Old Testament times with Moses, right? You know, he throws, you know, the, the, the priests of Pharaoh, they throw down their sticks and they turn to serpents. And then Moses has Aaron throw down the, his stick and it turns into a serpent. His his stick devours the other sticks. You know, we have these these stories, right, of like sticks turning into serpents. But we have stories of weird stuff happening in the latter days through the likes of Joseph Smith and through the early prophets. And And you don't have to go looking very hard to find these stories where they take modes and totems and they imbue them with power and they use them to focus their intentionality to be able to access the mind of God. And so for for me, at least that gives me pause to be able to reflect on my own life upon the things that I have that I value, such as the scriptures. I love the scriptures. I love opening them. I, I love I love the, uh, you know, there's a joke that I have with one of my oldest friends. Her name's Holly. She was, uh, she was a friend that was very instrumental in my wife and I dating and getting engaged and getting married. We probably, we probably wouldn't have gotten over the whole dating scenario without our friend Holly. And, <laughs> and there, you know, there was a running joke because I, I, I got my, uh, my brand new scripture, a brand new pair of scriptures there. And I remember opening them up and just smelling them because there was a very distinct <laughs> smell to like brand new scriptures. And I was like, I'm like, oh, it smells like the gospel, right? <laughs> And, and so just this running joke that has ever happened about, you know, how the scriptures smell like the gospel. The gospel has a smell. And I just, I've always loved it. That's always been a, a totem and a mode for me that has spoken to me and has blessed my life. And I know other people have found, you know, going up into nature for them, and because I used that before, is just as powerful. And they go up there and, and they connect with God and they have incredible experiences there. Nephi went up into high mountains, right? He, he seems to have the same affinity for this kind of mode. For me, I like going out into nature, but it doesn't fill me that way. So it's just the challenge of being able to, for us to recognize what in our life, because once we kind of consciously recognize in our life of like, what, what is that thing that I, I put my intentionality into? What's that thing that I kind of naturally access God with? And it can be anything. But the minute you consciously find it, man, that opens up a lot of doors and possibilities. And it, it just inspires using this using this element, now that you've consciously recognized it, of being able to develop it even further and to be able to feel the peace that comes from God with being able to do that. So as we open up section 28 and into this uh, talk of the stone, I just think it's a fascinating concept, this idea of a, of a totem and a mode of pouring our intentionality to, because once Hiram Page found out that you know they accepted that his revelations weren't legitimate like, like they pulverized the stone they like broke it. <laughs> like they like they ground it to dust and then they burned the pages <laughs> and so it's like you know they got rid of any any sight of these pages and everything you know they had to break apart the totem and it just for me that goes to show just how powerful focused intentionality really is you know that brings up a point that i hadn't thought of before necessarily but that you know how how committed Hiram Page was to really trying to follow and and understand the restored gospel and God and come into a relationship with him that that he was humble enough and willing when it was shown him that he was being deceived that he was humble enough and willing to divest himself of that right like that's actually really impressive that he he didn't uh you know say no you know I'm going to stick with it or 
or, you know, you're wrong and, and create this whole contention out of it, right? Anyway, that, that's, that's, to me, that shows something about Hiram Page's character. We, we may look at this, oh, look, he was deceived. And it's like, look, everybody's deceived. You know, <laughs> if you, if you don't think you're deceived, you're deceived. <laughs> right? right. Everybody's been deceived at some point in their life. The, the question is when you realize it and you come into an understanding of it, what did you do about it? Right. Yeah. And Hiram Page, you know, he, he says, okay, you know, I'm, I'm done with that. I'm, I'm way with that. I want to make sure that I am really understanding who God is and that I'm not you know, going down the, uh, the wrong way of, of understanding who he is and, and his order and how he's trying to, to bring about, you know, the, the restoration of the gospel. And so anyway, I just think, uh, kudos to Hiram Page. I don't, I don't remember further history of him, you know, what, what ends up happening, uh, later with Hiram Page or not, but, um, you know, this whole section, uh, as we were talking about, or as uh, at the beginning, is sort of this model or pattern of of how uh, Latter Day Saints doctrinally view the role of revelation. That you know, everyone, every individual is entitled to and and should, I guess, is the right word. I'm not sure. Receive personal revelation, and they may even record it, and it's it's important for them. But there's only one person who is supposed to receive revelation that in regards to directing the affairs of the church. And so uh, one of the ways that I think this is explained well in this section is in the verse that talks to Oliver Cowdery. So in verse 8, towards the end of the verse 8, the Lord's talking about how Oliver Cowdery will receive revelation. He says, thou shalt have revelations, but write them not by way of commandment. So Oliver Cowdery is told that, yes, you know, he's supposed to take the scriptures and the revelation. He's supposed to expound upon them and he's supposed to teach and he's supposed to exhort and all this sort of stuff. But revelation that he receives is just for him. And he may write it down. He may share it, but it's not authoritative, so to speak. It's not a revelation that has any binding power on, on someone else from an organizational point of view even though he is second elder of the church and, you know, has gone through all these experiences with Joseph Smith. These revelations he receives are for Oliver Cadre. And so the, the pattern that we, that is laid out here that, that is persist to this day in our understanding or Latter-day Saint understanding, doctrinal understanding of how uh, revelation works is that there's only one person that receives it for the organization of the church and how the church is to proceed in matters. The Lord and then each individual. And, and we've taken that and we've, we've sort of expanded that principle out to different roles, right? And callings within the church. Oh, you know, so, you know, you're the bishop. And so you just are entitled to receive revelation for the ward and, and, and things like that. We've done that, you know, sort of expanded that principle out into the, the policies and, and culture of the church as, as it's sort of developed over the years. And so that that's how this section has influenced the the growth of the church. Yeah, you know, and going down, I, I love that about the the revelations, but not by way of commandment, because it really does open up this this ability that we have the, the direct capacity of receiving everything that the prophet does. You know, in the Book of Mormon, we have Lehi who has the dream, right? And his and then Nephi comes along and he wants to have the same dream. And not only does he have the same dream, but it actually becomes it, – it, it, he gets more. 
than what Lehi even mm-hmm. was, was given. He He's given interpretations upon interpretations and is given more that he writes down. And so we have every right and ability of, of, of having this kind of revelation and this kind of knowledge. But for the one over, you know, I think I'm going to use, you know, these, especially for this episode, but <laughs> I don't know, maybe modes and totems will get into other episodes. I don't know. <laughs> we'll build on it maybe. So, uh, but, uh, you know, if we look at the church itself as one grand totem, what one grand thing that we look at, you know, the, the prophet really is the, is the voice by which those narratives are framed by which it itself infers and, and kind of recycles back into itself to where we are able to experience the same kind of modes in similar ways. So for, for instance, if you go to an LDS church, it's going to, it has a certain feel to it that is very indicative mm-hmm. of an LDS chapel, right? You walk into an LDS chapel and the feeling and the, the aura and the, and, and you walk into a chapel and, and you feel the same kind of thing. It's the same, the same process, the same um, format. It's the same thing no matter what temple you go into. It has the same kind of reverent feeling no matter what temple it is. You can just like walk in like you know, with blindfolded and you kind of feel the same shared experience everywhere you go. And the church has been able to create these sacred spaces in these beautiful ways that are replicatable. You know, they, they've, they've literally been able to replicate these sacred space feelings no matter where, no matter where they're at in the world and what language or what culture that they, that they're built in. And that is an amazing thing to be able to have that kind of spirit pervade in these things to where that revelation from, and that ability of creating those sacred spaces from the top down are maintained in that way. And I've, I've always very much loved that and appreciated that. You know, and, and I would add that that is the way that the church does it in this policy of, of, or not policy, this, this principle of saying that the prophet or the president of the church is the one who receives revelation for how that goes isn't because that that narrative or that that shared experience is the only way to experience God or even it's not because it's the way that everyone should experience God it's it's that this is the way that the Lord has revealed in this manner for the restored church to order things. And so in order to create that shared narrative that is consistent, that that does work for the people that are experiencing it, that's the way that you order it, right? But it makes total sense that, you know, we've talked about this in, in the other podcasts. It makes total sense that this is not the only way that God is working to redeem his people, you know, and, and uh, he's going to work in, in, a myriad of ways in, in different organizations and through different people to accomplish his work. And so I just want to point out, you know, we're often so exclusive about our religious experience and mode <laughs> of, of being that, that that is, you know, that's not, as I'm reading through the Doctrine and Covenants, that's not what the Lord is saying here. It's not exclusive, it's inclusive. And the Lord is is bringing out this church as as a way and a method for him to reveal himself to the people and to bring them into this understanding and narrative and experience with him. Yeah. Well, Ben, I think I've said pretty much everything that I came here and I had to say. Okay. Sounds good. Do you have anything else that you wanted to add? Uh, no, I mean, there's a lot more in these sections, but um, I think uh, we've done a good run on it. 
Okay. <laughs> well, sounds good. Well, I appreciate everybody for sticking around and and hopefully there was something there valuable. I know I had a I had some uh, some great realizations here. I I always keep notes on the side of things I'm going to go back over and uh, and check out too. So you've given me a lot of a uh, lot of food for thought. So until next week, we'll be going pressing forward into sections 29 and beyond, and and open up that discussion, and that'll be awesome and uh, a lot of fun. But until then, I'm Shiloh Logan. I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you, everybody, for listening.